Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. The tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade Inc. is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Sarah Eisen, live at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Today, Boeing shares on pace for their worst day in more than a year after this 737 MAX 9 blowout. We'll talk about the street's reaction this hour. Then, Lazard's chief market strategist. New role on why the Fed won't cut rates until May. Ron Temple here at Post 9. Finally, Apple looking to snap a three-week losing streak. Why the street is saying now may be the time to buy this dip. Right now, though, in the markets, S&P 500 and NASDAQ both higher. And NASDAQ gaining a little bit of steam, up more than 1% right now. S&P's up half a percent. Technology is leading, and you are seeing strength in some of the heavyweights. NVIDIA, AMD, HP, Salesforce, Intel, they're all fueling that rise. But a lot of groups are in the green. Consumer discretionary, communication services, staples, utilities, energy under pressure with crude oil prices sliding. Let's get some breaking news this morning out of the New York Fed. For that, we turn to Steve Leisman. Hey, Steve. Hey, guys. Some interesting info out of the New York Fed this morning on inflation expectations. They fell in the month of December for all time frames and fell sharply in some cases. Inflation expectations, in fact, falling below the long-run averages for all of these series. That is the 1, 3, and 5. Let's look at the data. The one-year inflation expectations at 3% down 0.4, one of the sharpest falls we've seen in this series, which goes back to 2012. The three-year down to 2.6%, down 0.4%. And the five-year even down 0.2 to 2.5%. Take a look at the long-run averages. All of these numbers are down below the long-run averages of these series, and in some cases, but not all, they're down below even the pre-pandemic average. So you can see that this is a definite, from a Fed standpoint, if this holds, it's just one month's worth of data, it's, it's back to a sense of normalcy of where you would want inflation expectations as a policymaker. The inflation expectations declined for food and rent. They were flat for gas and medical care, but those remain elevated relative Uh, to the other prices that are out there. Uh, Expected earnings growth declined by 0.2 percentage points to 2.5 percent. That's the lowest level since April 2021. And confidence of keeping one's job, however, increased with a decline in unemployment expectations and a decline in the probability of the concern about losing your job. Finally, household spending expectations fell 0.2 percentage points to 5 percent. That's the lowest level since September 21 but it's well above the 3.1% pre-pandemic level. So some interesting developments here, some sharp declines in inflation expectations, guys. No, that's something that the markets would like, the bond market, the stock market, the Fed. Steve, so do we really believe that this easing in financial conditions and the continued strength in the labor market and the consumer can continue without keeping inflation flaring back up or sticky? I actually do. I I think Lori Logan is a little bit behind the times in her commentary. I think what's happened is had this tremendous uh, 
positive supply shock to the economy. And I don't think there's a reason why, if you have increased consumption, you could not have increased supply to go along with it, unless you believe or have a theory that supply chains are permanently clogged or incapable of responding to increased demand. Um, I do see, by the way, a modest increase in the possibility or the probability of a March rate cut. This would be in line with it. One thing I did note, Sarah, when I went, when I looked to look at this data, the one year inflation expectations is very correlated to gas prices. Three year less so. And the five year inflation expectations is almost not correlated at all to in, uh, gas prices. And so it's really interesting to me to see that go down. And as you know, Sarah, the mm -hmm. Fed is much more interested in these longer term uh, terms than they are the, uh, the short term ones. Well, there's, there's buying on the back of this, Steve. Ten-year yield goes below 4%, back to 3.9-something. Steve, thank you. Steve Leesman. It, it, it's also, yes. I, I'm Go sorry, ahead. just one more thing, which is it's worth pointing out all of this happened amid really strong economic growth in the third quarter and what mm -hmm. looks to be reasonably strong growth, at least at or above potential, for the fourth quarter. So the correlation between um, inflation and growth really has broken down in this post-pandemic period, which is pointing many people to think it's much more of a supply shock than it is anything to do with the amount of, of, of monetary policy restraint. Yeah, there's that's the soft land, the immaculate disinflation. Yep. Thank you, Steve. Steve exactly. Leesman. Based on recent economic data, our next guest stays in that soft landing camp. He expects solid jobs numbers to continue as inflation slows to 2%, and he sees the first rate cut at the May meeting. Joining us now is Lazard Chief Market Strategist Ron Temple. Good to see you, Ron. And you have an interesting perspective because you also see all the activity or, or lack thereof that's been going on with deals and with companies. So you think the Fed's going to get away with this? I think the Fed is basically pulling off, as you just said, the immaculate disinflation. This is better than any of us could have really hoped if you go back, say, 12, 18 months ago. And so I look at the data and I agree with Steve. I think this can be a story where demand can remain relatively strong. Supply will grow with demand. That's how a normal market economy works. And the Fed seems to be getting it done. Um, look at the unemployment rate. Look at the job data last week, 216,000 jobs. Every month this year, 2023, an average of 225,000 jobs. And yet inflation has gone from 9% in the middle of 22 to 3%. So this seems to be working very well. So does that get rid of the notion that some, and some people, you still hear this, that if the Fed's going to be cutting rates, things have to be going wrong in the economy. And there's no urgency right now with this kind of data to be cutting rates. I don't buy that at all. In fact, I think the Fed's going to be cutting rates this year because inflation has come down so quickly. I mean, this is a great story of a lot of strength in the household sector. If you think about the corporate sector, Coming into this rate hike cycle, corporates had termed out their debt at very low interest rates. Um, so it's a very positive story on both household and corporate side. And I think basically we're going to pull through this quite well and still have good growth this year. So on that point, uh, Goldman's note over the weekend suggests maybe earnings have the potential to surprise to the upside. Do you think that's true or do you have doubts about some of the growth rates we're talking about? I'm a little more skeptical of the idea. So the consensus for earnings this year is 11% growth for the S&P 500. I believe Goldman's number, by the way, is closer to 5%. Yes. So I'm a little more in that 5 to 8% camp on earnings growth, which is still good, considering that we had the sharpest rate hike cycle in 40 years. And so I'm positive, but I think we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. I think what's exciting, by the way, within the market right now is for the last two years, all of the earnings growth in the S&P 500 has been the top seven stocks. Now it's time for that to broaden out as we move through this next stage of the monetary policy cycle. So I'm curious what you see in terms of activity at Lazard and how that shapes your view 
of the economy. Because with interest rates stabilizing, shouldn't we see a big pickup in activity, M&A, IPOs, that sort of thing? Well, I think generically, when you think about M&A activity, historically, there are always a few factors that play into it. It's confidence, as in lack of uncertainty. It's financing conditions and it's valuation. And so I do think we're setting up for a rebound. And you've seen Lazard and a number of other investment banks talk about green shoots year to date. So I'm encouraged that this is a good environment for corporate activity. And frankly, some of the things we'd all been worried about outside of M&A, like commercial real estate, if the Fed starts cutting rates, that takes some of the pressure off of that part of the economy, takes pressure off of leverage loan borrowers. Um, so this, again, is lining up to be a pretty positive backdrop. Uh, the headwinds, though, geopolitics, right? Obviously, an election later on this year, ongoing regulatory pressure from U.S. regulators. How much how hard will it be to punch through some of those things? Yeah, I think the geopolitics is a new element. We've, we've always had geopolitics, right? You know, we had a whole Cold War for decades. But back then, it was more conceptual. You know, you're worried about mutual assured destruction. Okay, are you really going to sell your equities because something happened over the weekend that made you nervous? Now, global supply chains are so complicated. Customer bases are truly globalized. You can't really ignore it. So I do think the geopolitical piece of this is another whole facet of complexity for investors and for company executives. Um, you can no longer just kind of discount and disregard geopolitics. So I think that's a challenge. But I'm optimistic that we're going to work through that through the year. I just think you have to actually have some kind of framework of thinking about different scenarios of what could go wrong and what could go right on geopolitics. And one of the areas of the market I like the most right now is emerging markets. Mm. Um, you know, admittedly, I'm structurally negative on the Chinese economy, but I think what's exciting is EMX China, where you're seeing the political the friction between the West and China leading to capital outflows from China. And I think you're going to see a lot of capital inflows in other countries like Mexico, India, and Thailand. Besides geopolitics, the other big bear case that, that you hear from the bears, less so maybe right now, is that yield curve inversion, leading indicators, the leading economic indicators, they spell out recessionary concerns. The fact that, you know, there are long and variable lags to monetary policy that we have not felt yet. There's still a case to be made for that stuff, isn't there? I mean, the risk isn't totally gone, but I think, you know, I, you know, people always say when someone says this time is different, it's a dangerous word. I think every time is different. <laughs> and so when I look at what's happening this time, we entered this rate hike cycle after a $5.3 trillion of fiscal stimulus in the United States. It should be no surprise that the consumer has done well. I mean, we've all talked about excess savings balances. The household sector had over two and a quarter trillion dollars of excess savings when the Fed started raising rates. So I do think this time is different and that the households had the dry powder to see their way through higher gas prices, higher rent, higher health care costs. And now they're basically getting their confidence back that the Fed has inflation under control. And, and getting jobs and wages. Wage exactly. Growth. Yeah. Ron, thank you very much. Appreciate thank it. You. The perspective. Ron Temple from Lazard. Still to come this morning, Boeing shares continue to slide after grounding more than 170 planes after that door plug blew out in the middle of an Alaska Airlines flight. We'll take a look at some of the reaction from the analyst community today with the stock on pace for the worst day since October of 22. Plus, speaking of aerospace, we are live in Cape Canaveral today as the U.S. launches its first moon landing mission in about five decades. Of course, our Morgan Brennan is there and has more on what's coming up. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Sarah. That's right. Speaking of aerospace, speaking of Boeing, the Boeing Lockheed Martin Joint Venture United Launch Alliance sending its next-gen powerful rocket to space for the first time on board a new type of spacecraft that is indicative of this commercial space race. After the break, we go to the moon. 
Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. The tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade Inc. is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. We are watching Boeing. If not for Boeing's decline right now, the Dow would actually be positive. Boeing, of course, getting hammered after that panel blew out from an Alaska Airlines flight on Friday, forcing the company and other airliners, airlines to ground flights. Our Phil Lebeau here with the latest on the investigation and what we've learned. Phil. And Sarah, let me bring you up to speed because we've got a number of developments and we think we may have something here in the next few hours in terms of the investigation. First of all, the focus is on the fuselage plug. That is the deactivated door that was pulled off of the 737 MAX-9. Pressurization problems were documented at least three times before this flight on Friday night when the blowout occurred. The grounding duration, that remains unclear. Let me give you a sense of what's happening here because there are two things going on on separate tracks but related tracks. First, the NTSB is analyzing the flight data recorder in addition to analyzing the aircraft, which is parked at this airport in Portland, as well as the fuselage plug that has been recovered. As they look at that, separately, the FAA and Boeing are discussing the inspection process that Alaska, United, and six other airlines will go through so that they can look at their Dash 9s and say, yes, we believe these planes are safe to return to service. Just to give you some perspective, there's not a lot of Dash 9s out there relative to other commercial airplanes, but there is a substantial number. 218 have been delivered. Of that, the grounding order impacts 171-9s. Again, the bulk of these are flown by Alaska and United. You've got United with 79-9s, Alaska 65. Six other foreign carriers have 74-9s. Boeing says that uh, CEO Dave Calhoun has arrived out in Washington. He is out in Renton and will be there today and tomorrow. He will hold an employee town hall meeting tomorrow, along with other Boeing leaders. The focus will be on quality control and reinforcing the message that Boeing has to do a better job when it comes to manufacturing aircraft. Finally, take a look at shares of Spirit Aerosystems under a lot of pressure because it makes the fuselage, also makes the plug, and what role it may have played in this, hard to determine at this point. Once the NTSB finishes its investigation, we'll have a better sense. Guys, back to you. Hey, Phil, you mentioned earlier this uh, town hall meeting regarding safety at Boeing. What yep. is their message internally right now? We've got to do a better job. In, in, in layman's terms, that's basically what they're saying. And Dave Calhoun believes that Stan Dale and his team are doing a better job. Now, there are critics out there who say, no, that's not the case. I can tell you from discussing with airline executives when we do our quarterly interviews and we ask them, you know, the aircraft that you're getting from Boeing right now, well, uh, you know, they're, they're not, they would love to see them come at a faster rate, but how's the quality? And almost all of them say the same thing. The aircraft that are delivered, when they get them from Boeing, are ready to go much quicker and the quality is better than, let's say, six, seven, eight years ago. So there has been improvement there, at least anecdotally. That's what I'm hearing from airline executives. Phil, thanks. Uh, Phil LeBeau, obviously a huge story today. For more on what to expect from the stock moving, moving forward, let's check in with Bernstein analyst uh, Doug Harned. Doug, it's great to have you. It sounds like uh, you think this is more of a one-off than a 
situation that would necessitate a design redo, right? Yeah, I, I think you have to, um, and as, as was said on the NTSB um, conference call last night, I mean, the first look is at this airline airplane itself at Alaska. And that's what they're doing, and that's what you know Phil was talking about. Um, and I think if you look at the history of this type of deactivated door, they're they're not uncommon. Um, they're used on Airbus planes. They're used on on um, the 737-900ER, the legacy airplane before the Max used these. Uh, we haven't seen any incidents with respect to those. And so at first blush, I would not think this is fundamentally different as far as an incident than if you had an actual activated door blowout. Can you talk a bit about the responsibility between the production of the part or the assembly of the fuselage versus the, um, the inspection responsibilities of Boeing itself? Well, I think this falls, if it turns out and the fuselage is delivered from Spirit with the door, so um, that is, that's the origin of this. And as we know, um, there have been a number of problems at Spirit um, that have the tail fittings, drill, hole, holes being drilled, those sorts of things. So Spirit's had a history here of issues that we, we believe that the change in management with Pat Shanahan taking over at Spirit, they've already made changes in the management team, that they're addressing those blocking and tackling issues. If it turns out that's where this originated, we think that is on the, you know, these issues are being addressed in the right way in spirit. Hopefully, we won't see more of this. However, I don't think you can totally take the responsibility away from Boeing. At the end of the day, uh, Boeing is delivering this airplane and has responsibility for these issues. And I think you can also, there also, I'm sure, will be work. You know there were um, three issues in terms of pressurization warnings on this yeah. airplane prior to this. And so I think there are questions as well. You've got to look at any maintenance work that had been done at Alaska also to identify, is this a one-off issue? I, our belief is it's unlikely it's a broader fundamental design issue. I understand what you mean when you say it's a one-off issue, but it, it's hard not to put it in the broader context, Doug, of the two max crashes. And I know that was under different management and it was five years ago. And you said they put all sorts of systems in place. But but for investors to wonder if there's still some some real issues inside the company, that this is still happening. Oh, I think you have to ask that question. I mean, it, this is a serious issue. Uh, it could have been considerably worse. You, This is an industry where you can't have failures, uh, single failures are a big problem. So if this is a one-off manufacturing issue at Spirit, um, yeah, I mean, this is this is one more thing that hits Boeing. Um, but I do think we need to find out exactly what happened here. I am not at all surprised that the stock is down today. It had, a, you know, it was obviously had a very, very good year last year. And this brings up thoughts of all of the issues that have happened in the past. So the one, the one comment I would make on this, though, is having a deactivated door issue like this, um, you know, in our view, is not necessarily a max issue at all. Uh, it, this could have conceivably, we think, happened on a 737-900ER. Um, deactivated doors have been used for a long time. and Spirit has, has produced those. 
Uh, your point's well taken, especially given the, the recent fire in Japan. Now this, uh, the complexities of the production and the operation of the airline business are incredible. Uh, Doug, thank you for that. Uh, Doug Harnett over at Bernstein today. We'll stay in aerospace because the first lunar lander in more than 50 years launching off from Cape Canaveral early this morning. That's where we find our Morgan Brennan. Morgan, tell us about the significance of this. Okay, well, at 2.18 Eastern this morning, Sarah, United Launch Alliance's Vulcan Centaur lifted off from just behind me, Cape Canaveral, in a maiden flight that was a decade in the making. It carried to space a privately owned robotic lander for startup Astrobotic in what has been poised to be the first attempted lunar landing by the U.S. in five decades. Unclear, though, now whether that's actually what is going to happen, because just moments ago, Astrobotic saying that it has suffered an anomaly, that an anomaly has occurred, which, quote, prevented Astrobotic from achieving a stable sun-pointing orientation. The team is responding in real time as the situation unfolds and will be providing updates as more data is obtained and analyzed. So unclear whether this mission has been compromised or whether, as they troubleshoot, uh, they can basically right this situation uh, and, and, and get everything back on track. We'll continue to monitor it. In the meantime, for United Launch Alliance, which is a Boeing-Lockheed Martin joint venture, Vulcan already has a backlog of 70 missions, including dozens for Amazon, as that tech giant now builds out its satellite-based broadband service. But this was also the first of two flights that were necessary to certify ULA's powerful new rocket to fly national security missions. Our nation is facing just tremendous challenges, both from Russia, but especially China, in being able to get in front of that with our access to space and our ability to, the, to keep space as a peaceful domain is absolutely critical. This platform is going to play a big role in that, especially because we specialize in those very difficult, unique to national security kind of orbits. So ULA CEO Tori Bruno telling me that between government demand and the proliferation of these commercial satellite mega constellations that, quote, a scarcity of lift is probably going to last the better part of a decade, if not longer. So more demand than supply. Launch price is undisclosed. This is believed to put ULA in a much more competitive position with the industry leader. SpaceX also comes as ULA is on the sale block, though Bruno uh, declined to comment on that. As for Astrobotic, which was contracted with NASA, we're going to continue to monitor that situation as it's playing out in real time. Keep in mind, though, it is not the only commercial company that is contracted with NASA to land cargo and conduct scientific research on the moon just next month. As of right now, another NASA contracted lunar lander built by Intuitive Machines is also set to launch. In total, as of right now on the manifest, we have five, including today's mission, that are scheduled to blast off and head to the moon to attempt these types of landings. Guys? Morgan's going to be fun to watch uh, with your help. We'll see where we get what it looks like uh, come early February. That's our Morgan Brennan today. Big day. Still to come this morning, a new report looking at the surge in activist campaigns. Just this morning, the CEO of Twilio announcing his resignation after some bruising activist battles. Plus, we're watching Lululemon lower after management said it may come up short of consensus estimates for profit guidance. They raised their, their revenue estimates for the holiday quarter. Five Below also down after saying the midpoint of Q4 guidance could miss. That CEO will be on closing bell overtime this afternoon, along with the chief exec of Abercrombie at 4 p.m. Eastern. Too smart for your trading app. 
tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. The tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade, Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. Got a news alert on Nike and its near 30-year partnership with Tiger Woods. Our Dom Chu's watching that. Hey, Dom. He's been a brand ambassador since 1996, Carl, and just over social media, Tiger Woods announced on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, that uh, the relationship between he and Nike has apparently ended, saying that over 27 years ago, I was fortunate to start a partnership with one of the most iconic brands in the world. The days since have been filled with so many amazing moments and memories. If I started naming them, I could go on forever. He goes on to say, I have had the pleasure of working with along the way. People will ask if there is another chapter. Yes, there will certainly be another chapter. See you in L.A. Uh, that's a that's a screen grab of the social media post that Tiger Woods has put up. We have reached out to Nike for an official comment or statement about the relationship with Tiger Woods. We have yet to hear back. We will update you as soon as we do. But again, this is one of the most uh, high-profile relationships in sports and apparel and just history overall for, for sports and golf, certainly. And, Sarah, this is something that I know that you've watched very closely covering Nike for as long as you have. But this particular deal is going to be interesting for people in the golf world because since around 2022, in the wake of his accident, his automobile accident that derailed his kind of uh, professional career for a while, he's trying to make a comeback. He's been spotted in FootJoy golf apparel and wear, at least on the shoe side of things, for the last couple of years. FootJoy is a brand that's owned by a Cushnet, which is the parent company of Titleist. It's also publicly traded. So a lot of things swirling around, Sarah, with, with regard to the athletic apparel universe in golf. Uh, Nike shares right now, at least at, towards their session highs, I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, and I think one reason, Dom, is this has been widely speculated that at the end of 2023 and expected that Tiger would no longer renew after after so long. You know, it's a relationship that goes back to Phil Knight, the, the founder of Nike. He backed Tiger before Tiger was a champion. Um, and, and Tiger is very important in the in the Nike sort of evolution and story. Apex Marketing, you know, we go to on, on some of the brand exposure and what they're worth. They say that Tiger brings more value to the brand than LeBron because of the pace of play of golf, the amount of airtime. Golfers have longer Longevity, And I will also note, Dom, that, that Nike stuck with Tiger. Remember when he was going through some issues a few years ago, you said that derailed his professional career. All sorts of advertisers, AT&T and Accenture, they, they abandoned him. Nike did not. Right. And the, the, the curious part about this one as well, you mentioned all of those other brands that, that were associated with Nike. This is also a situation where people are talking about what that next stage is, right? You mentioned all of those relationships he's had in the past. The reason why the FootJoy thing is curious is because, again, FootJoy is one of the preeminent apparel and footwear brands in golf, one that's not Nike, but one that's mm -hmm. owned by parent company of Titleist, a Cushnet. Other people have speculated about whether other apparel brands and other golf equipment makers out there could be filling in the void if there is one uh, right now. Tiger Woods is a tailor-made golf equipment staffer. TaylorMade does have a presence in apparel, not quite as big as some other folks out there. But Tiger is already in a relationship with TaylorMade, so do they become part of that picture out there? Also, other standalone apparel brands are owned by other companies out there, like Top Golf, Modern Golf, the parent company of Callaway, also owns Travis Matthew, others. 
Could they become in the mix? So there's definitely a lot of speculation about mm -hmm. what's going to go on with Tiger and his apparel going forward. Uh, it's just curious right now that he's done this over social media. We're still waiting to hear the official word from Nike. Yeah, no, trying trying to reach them. We'll, we'll of course bring that to you as as we can. We should also note Nike got out of the golf equipment business in 2016, which is why Tiger, you know, uses different clubs and that sort of thing. Dom, thank you. Dom Chu. Meantime, some high-profile proxy fights at companies like Disney headlined what was a record year for activist activity, a new report shedding some light on those numbers. And for that, we turn to Leslie Picker. Morning, Leslie. Hey, good morning, Carl. Yeah, 2023, the busiest year ever for activists. That's according to a new report by Lazard. A big push in Q4 helped propel the year's activity to a place in the record books. The last three months of the year saw 87 campaigns. That's 54% higher than the average Q4. And that contributed to the 252 campaigns globally for the year, a record thanks to a big jump in activity in Asia and Europe. The U.S. actually saw a decline in activity. Elliott and Starboard once again raking as the top two, but Oasis Management rounding out the top three thanks to its slew of campaigns in Asia. Technology, healthcare, and consumer were the three biggest sector targets, with activists at Expedia, Salesforce, Biomarin, Illumina, Disney, and Starbucks capturing a multitude of headlines throughout the year. And just today, the CEO of Twilio, who had faced significant activist pressure from the likes of Legion and Anson Funds, stepped down, sending those shares higher. You can see up more than 6% right now. In the Twilio situation and an increasing number of others, the move was to push the enterprise software maker to sell. In fact, despite the dearth of overall M&A in 2023, a record number of deal-focused campaigns launched this year in North America, with sell the company being the most common demand. Investment bankers, other advisors I've spoken with are hopeful that this will help jumpstart deal-making in 2024, guys. All right, Leslie, thank you. Time now for news update. Bertha Coombs has it. Bertha. Hi, Sarah. The Supreme Court today refused to hear an appeal by social media platform X. The company was trying to reverse a ban on going public about the number of times the government subpoenaed the tech company for user data. The Supreme Court did not say why it turned down the case. Sources say President Biden is not considering firing Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin for not disclosing his hospitalization last week. Three administration officials told NBC News the president still has full trust and confidence in Austin. A Pentagon spokesperson says he does not intend to resign. And the day NFL coaches fear the most is here. With the end of the regular season comes major organization changes. So far on the so-called Black Monday, the Atlanta Falcons and the Washington Commanders fired coaches Arthur Smith and Ron Rivera. And there are rumblings, New England Patriots legendary coach and six-time Super Bowl winning Bill Belichick, the GOAT, could be next. We'll reportedly meet with owner Robert Kraft this week after going just 4-13 and 13 this season. I don't think he's ever had a season that bad. Back to you, Sarah. Yeah, the day of reckoning. Thank you, Bertha. Still to come, Heyman Capital's Kyle Bass on why investors should keep their money out of China. We continue to watch Apple. Some antitrust headlines this morning, but the street is coming to the company's defense. A look at why Morgan Stanley and Evercore say buy this recent dip when we return. 
News alert on NVIDIA as the stock hits an all-time high. Christina Partzilnevelis is here with that. Now well, what? <laughs> now what? NVIDIA is playing up to its strength in a single announcing, or I should say a single consumer desktop GPU. It's part of, and I don't want to get too technical, the RTX 40 Super Series that can run on your PC at home. Many of the CES announcements are about playing video games. Yeah, it's a tactical environment. Uh, with a lot of these announcements that you're seeing on your screen, they've been leaked for weeks uh, just leading up to CES. But the stock is reacting positively, nonetheless, up almost 5% right now, similar to competitor AMD. They also launched a new gaming GPU just about an hour ago, but we're a little bit more secretive about it leading up to CES. So their stock is also almost flat 5% higher. But you have graphic processing units, you know, the ones that are used for AI, costing companies tens of thousands of dollars. And companies like Google, Microsoft reportedly buying over 100,000 units of them. So that means often smaller firms and consumers find these semiconductors out of reach financially and physically, literally, given their high demand. But NVIDIA and AMD say these GPUs can actually be used to run AI at home, with NVIDIA calling their chip specifically the most capable AI PCs you can get. AI PCs, for those that don't know, are computers that run powerful AI software with companies like Intel and AMD suggesting it'll really help to revitalize the PC market. NVIDIA also noting that all of these new gaming chips are compliant with U.S. export controls put in place this past October and can officially be shipped to China. But NVIDIA's relationship with China is changing. China's largest cloud companies have been testing lowered-powered AI chips. And the Wall Street Journal, as you can see on your screen, reporting that companies like Alibaba, Tencent plan to order fewer NVIDIA AI chips than originally planned, instead opting for local alternatives like Huawei. And Reuters today is reporting that those chips could be shipped or mass-produced, I should say, in Q2. So that Wall Street Journal report says Chinese buyers are uncertain a little bit about NVIDIA's ability to continue to supply them, but Wedbush analysts, uh, they put out not, not too long ago, saying they're a little bit more pos- positive, saying this could take a while, and it's still a net positive for the stock because they're still making the chips and they're still selling it to that country. I mean, the journal article seemed like it was, like, we don't want, we don't want your sloppy seconds. You know, the, the, you, NVIDIA has to try to navigate around the export controls and make chips, which people were optimistic about that they would do and they would just have that market. What if China doesn't want it? Yeah, exactly. But Uh to the point, Huawei is a little bit much more, a few years behind NVIDIA when it comes to these AI chips. So that is part of the reason the argument that NVIDIA will say, hey, they can't really opt to, to leave us uh, so quickly. The other point, too, is we're talking about all of this, these AI chips and the U.S. expert controls, but the other part of the equation is the mature chips that go into auto, uh, housing appliance, cars. And so you have uh, several representatives, bipartisan leaders today, and it was in the Wall Street Journal, putting out a note to the Biden administration saying specifically, hey, you focus so much on the AI chips. What about all of these older chips? China's going to eventually flood the market like they did with the solar industry, the steel industry. We need to make sure that the United States is not over, overly reliant on these more mature nodes used for cars and your kitchen stuff. Wow. So, so that could be coming next. It could, yeah. especially because the Department of Commerce is going to be doing a survey to look into this. Christina, thank you. Thanks. Never enough time to talk semis these days. Human Capital's Kyle Bass, speaking of China, is next. His outlook as regulators lift a net selling ban. Plus, keeping an eye on crude today, trying to hold 70, down more than 4% this morning. Energy sector now at a three and a half week low. Money Movers continues after this. 
Welcome back. When it comes to finding value abroad, our next guest says steer clear of China, predicting a year full of losses for equity investors, a struggling consumer and continued turbulence with the U.S. over the independence of Taiwan influenced the market there. Joining us now is Heyman Capital Management founder and CIO Kyle Bass. Kyle, consistent call from you on betting on China. And I know a lot of your view is shaped on, on geopolitics and safety, but just as far as the investor case for China, I mean, you, you've seen it. Valuations look really cheap, the cheapest they've been in years, and China has the firepower to deal with its economic problems. Why is that wrong? Yeah, I mean, I don't accept the fact that China has the firepower to deal with this economic problem. They've, they've only been at Western capital markets for a little over 20 years. Uh, and think about how long we were at it before we entered our financial crisis and, and think about how bad we screwed it up. Uh, they've got they've got almost 400 percent banking system assets to GDP. Going into the financial crisis, we had about 100 percent and the non-banks added another 0.7. So, you know, when you think about the sheer leverage in their system uh, and you think about their economic output and their dire need or, or desperate need for dollars, um, China is in a really precarious place today. And, you know, you say that that I've been steadfast in my recommendations. You know, I think it's important just to look back 15 years. China's grown its GDP reported reportedly by over 500 percent in 15 years. And if you invested in the Shanghai Shenzhen 300 index 15 years ago, you've lost a third of your money. How can you lose a third of your money if the country you invested in is up 500 percent in GDP? There's only one answer, and it's communism and the state run economy. Uh, unfortunately, Western investors will not get to benefit from the meteoric growth of China in the last 15 years. But if you look at the last four years since China uh, implemented the national security law and ruined Hong Kong, the Hang Seng's down four years, four, uh, four years in a row. You've lost 40 percent of your money investing in Chinese listed equities in Hong Kong. And they're down another four percent this year. And uh, I guess the Hang Seng's almost down five percent this year and the Shenzhen index down four percent in the first eight days. I don't know how many beatings investors must take before they realize that investing in uh, a state-run, communist-driven economy is a bad idea. And you, you mentioned the, yeah. the fact that Chinese valuations are cheap. Um, I remember in 2017, when I was writing a sanctions compliance program for a large endowment, uh, uh, I was getting incredible pushback from the staff telling me why, that we should keep investing in Russia. And I said, you know, Putin took uh, uh, Georgia in 2008, took Crimea in 2014. Why on earth mm -hmm. would we be allocating hundreds of millions of dollars to Russia? We know who Putin is. And they said, well, things are really yeah. cheap. We should be buying Russia. Well, cheap is not a great answer if you're investing in a totalitarian economy. All right. So what do you expect as far as the, I mean, we have a number of elections, Taiwan, the U.S., mm -hmm. a, a lot of these put China front and center. And I'm, I'm curious what you expect. Yeah, uh, Taiwan's election is in five days, and, and it it's really is a hinge in history. If you if you've looked at uh, if you listen to Xi Jinping's New Year's uh, speech, uh, uh, you know he said Taiwan will uh, uh, reunite with China, and the Chinese and the Taiwanese people on both sides of the strait need to rejoice in the in the union of these two. Uh, 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 countries, or, or uh, I guess I don't know, they call it a renegade province at the moment in China. Uh, but I think that you know we've got a we've got a really pivotal election in which you've got a DP, DPP candidate 
that that has anywhere between in the polling a three and twelve percent lead over the China's preferred KMT candidate in Taiwan. So I don't I don't think the gray zone or let's say the political zone is, is how China is going to win this battle. I think unfortunately post election I think all bets are off on when China. Uh, decides to either invade or or whatever you want to call it with Taiwan, take Taiwan over, and so I think we're at a hinge in history here at the beginning of the year, uh, and, and 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 in the next five days we're going to see how that plays out. Kyle, I wonder what you make of American corporates that are diversifying their supply chains outside of China to India, Vietnam. Are, you, are they doing it fast enough? And what do you make of more consumer-led names uh, like a Nike or a Starbucks that are? doubling down and seem to be quite comfortable with growth rates over there. Yeah, um, Carl, it's it's a pleasure to talk to you. I think that uh, I think I think that if you were an American multinational and you had a you had a significant supply chain uh, in China, uh, if you've noticed that you just look at the number of mentions of words like reshoring, nearshoring and supply chain diversification in annual reports in the last three years, it's it's gone up exponentially. Uh, so I think that they are moving as fast as they can. Uh, as you and I both know, there, there are many uh, that won't be able to move fast enough. Uh, a lot of the more, let's say, nimble players have gone asset light, uh, and they're doing uh, the, the very minimal amount of business that they can do in China. Uh, but it, it, look, as you know, Carl, it, if, if this comes to fruition and we actually, ha- we actually end up having uh, a more serious conflict, the West has a more serious conflict with China, uh, over uh, their belligerence on Taiwan, I, there will be U.S. corporations like Nike, like Starbucks, like Apple, um, that will actually have significant write-downs in China. There'll be investors that lose hundreds of billions of dollars uh, that they have allocated there, the pensions and endowment community of the U.S. Um, so I, I, unfortunately, uh, not everyone's going to get this right. Well, we appreciate it, Kyle. Uh, Thank you for the heads up. I know we'll be talking to you many times before then, hopefully. Kyle Bass from Heyman. Pleasure. Still to come this morning, the street defending Apple today. Why some analysts are staying bullish uh, despite this recent downturn since the beginning of the year. Back in two. Shares of Apple off to their worst start since 1982 after logging declines in every session this year. But could 24 be the year Apple becomes a bigger player in the AI race? Our Deirdre Bosa has that story in today's Tech Check. Morning, Dee. Hey, good morning, Carl. So if last year was all about enabling generative AI, the GPUs, the compute power needed for large language models, this year is all about applications, and Apple could be a dark horse. Tim Cook's strategy has focused on integrating AI within its ecosystem of devices and services. So instead of a GPT moment, Apple sees AI as something that blends into the user experience and is embedded into your device rather than requiring a change of habits, like intentionally going to a chat GPT or a Bard. So instead of a chatbot, we could see a Gen AI-enabled iPhone, an operating system. A Morgan Stanley note this morning says that even more important than Apple's current fundamentals recovering, 2024 will be the year when Apple's, quote, 
edge AI opportunity comes to fruition and catalyzes a new upgrade cycle, as well as boosting services spend per user. Now, edge is the idea that large language models will be run on devices like smartphones instead of the cloud. And Apple has an installed base of more than $2 billion. The framework called MLX, it also utilizes the Apple ecosystem further by allowing developers to build models on Apple's powerful in-house silicon. Now, Apple hasn't overtly marketed the strategy. At times, it has even avoided saying AI altogether, while the other mega cap tech can't say it enough. Now, Cook and the team, they prefer the term machine learning that is a less flashy but more technically accurate description. And that might be part of the reason that shares have been hit so hard so early this year. As analysts are warning of weakness in sales of iPhones and Mac computers, there's no AI halo to fall back on versus, say, a Microsoft, which has spent the last year plus making the argument to Wall Street that it is leading the charge in AI. Even if monetization is slow on the pickup, it has that halo. So don't count Apple out as we start this year, guys. It doesn't typically rely on first mover advantage, as we well know. It susses out a market carefully. And another case in point could be the Vision Pro, um, which is launching in less than a month. And guys, this is another touch point that could form the backbone of its AI ecosystem, which is going to be built a lot differently. Be sure to tune into the Tech Check podcast later today. We're going to break down Apple's under the radar AI status even further there. All right. Good stuff. Thank you. Deirdre Bosa with Tech Check. And Apple is rebounding a bit today. So are the rest of the big tech stocks. And that's helping the overall market. Nasdaq's up more than a percent. S&P higher as well. Dow's being weighed down by Boeing. Although shaving its losses by quite a bit. Uh, we'll see about that. Oil trying to defend 70. Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. The tools and tech you need for a tough market. Plus low and capped commissions. Stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. TastyTrade, Inc. is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC.